how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200 plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters. Did Home Alone ruin John Hughes' career? The greatest movie never made? And how Jackie Chan creates perfection through failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Philip Harder got his start as a music video director, working with artists like the Cranberries, Foo Fighters, Incubus, and Prince. He learned how to tell stories and capture emotions in short formats. He joined a band, bought a Super 8, and that led to a music video career. In his latest film, Tuscaloosa, college graduate Billy Mitchell finds his plans change when he falls in love with an inmate who has multiple personalities. She lives at his father's mental institution. Based on the novel by Glasgow Phillips, the story stood out to Harder because of the way it weaved a love story with humor during a pretty intense racial time period in the early 1970s. In this interview, the writer-director talks about involuntary spontaneity on set, how Prince's Cinema Girl influenced Tuscaloosa, how to work in overtime mode, the importance of total immersion as a filmmaker, how to survive the witching hour, and why casting is everything. You can also find the print version of this story on Creative Screenwriting Magazine's website. I started as a music video director. Um, I was really influenced by punk bands in the uh, 80s and 90s, and I liked the fact that they were screaming about things that I sort of had in my head. So I uh, joined a band, jumped in a van, toured around, and brought a Super 8 camera and started filming other bands that I really appreciated at the time. Um, that led to a music video career, and eventually um, I got to the opportunity to shoot this film, Tuscaloosa, which I think has some of the elements that, you know, I learned about in my early days when I was self-taught, you know, with my Super 8 camera. And I just try to keep that in mind when I was uh, making the film. Do you see those early, those, uh, I see you worked with like Incubus and Foo Fighters and Prince. How do you kind of tell a story that goes along with the song, the song in such a limited time frame? Well, for some of those videos, like the Prince video, um, 
I worked closely with Prince, and he wanted to tell a story about um, racism against Middle Eastern people living in the United States right after 9-1-1. And so we have to do it very uh, sort of symbolized and summarized because it is like a three- or four-minute music video. Um, so we just get the main points across, and also visually, you know, we're not dealing with dialogue, of course, in music videos. So visually, I'm I'm using elements that also try to tell those stories, and um, I guess that was um, quite an interesting transition with some of the things I'd like to talk about today, with how to take those ideas and turn it into a screenplay and eventually a movie. Yeah, dialogue can definitely be a, a crutch to some to sometimes when you're overusing it. What attracted to this you to this story, which is based on the novel? What kind of stood out about this story? Well, I think I was most drawn by um, the author, Glasgow Phillips, how he um, could weave a love story with humor in a pretty intense racial time period of the early 70s. And this was something that um, I felt would make a very fascinating movie. I really couldn't, um, I could really feel for the... Uh, issues of that time period. Um, I remember as a kid looking at The Best of Life. Uh, we had this book, and it was probably printed like in about 1972. And I was really influenced by some of those photos from life, like Vietnam War, anti-war protests, all these things. And um, maybe subliminally those ideas spoke to me when I read the novel. Um, what I also liked about the novel was I couldn't predict what was going to happen, which I thought was fascinating. And the fact that the novel taught me not just about things like that certain time period in Alabama in the early 70s, it also presented a concept which we now call white privilege, um, something I never thought about. I, I didn't even understand the concept. Um, today, that's what we call it. But at the time, when I first read this novel, it opened my eyes. It educated me. And I thought this was a, an important story to tell. Did you kind of plot out these different themes, like you mentioned war and race issues, and also that you're dealing with multiple personalities and uh, mental problems? Did you plot out, plot out these themes to kind of think them through? Or is it more about character when you're writing the screenplay? I think it was a lot about character. And I really focused on the character of Virginia. She's... Um, a character who's thrown into Tuscaloosa against her will. She's a young woman. She's played by Natalia Dyer. You may have seen her in Stranger Things. Um, she's thrown into this world being institutionalized as what the psychiatrist doctor in this story says. She is a nymphomaniac. And, of course, this was um, a medical term that was used at the time to pretty much oppress women for having an independent spirit. Um, and her character, I could not predict. She kind of reminded me of um, Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He's wild, but should he be institutionalized? And I found myself cheering for her. You know, she's kind of a, a badass. She really um, was a free spirit. She did what she wanted to do, but now she's just yanked out of her youth and thrown into this institution. So she meets Billy, 
our lead character played by Devin Bostick. And he falls for her. He starts sneaking her out of the uh, institution. And she begins to um, regain her spirit. Um, she was pretty knocked down at the beginning of this, this movie. And what I find fascinating is I could never predict what would happen with her. I was cheering for her. And I don't want to give a spoiler here, but I was worrying about her, maybe because I was so influenced by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the outcome of Jack Nicholson in that story. What were some other obstacles she faced as a woman? You mentioned these kind of wrongful labels back then, but in addition to her kind of seeing how white privilege played out, what were some other problems, just uh, sexism and those kind of things? Some of the um, obstacles I was dealing with was right when we were shooting this movie, um, there was something called the Me Too movement. And this was like smacking us in the face. Are we, how are we handling these issues? And it's very delicate, as you know. Um, but I just tried to use the novel and Natalia Dyer's spirit to guide her character. Um, oftentimes when there was an issue, for example, one scene, um, we realized that Natalia was just playing a prop standing next to the lead character, Billy, played by Devin Bostick. And you, we could already see when we were rehearsing it that this was wrongheaded. Why would she just stand there and listen to these two guys talk? It didn't make any sense. And so working with the actors, Devin and Natalia, and Marchant Davis, who plays Nigel, um, they started saying, well, what if Virginia chimes in here. She takes my line. Why not? And Virginia was, or Natalia was all about that. And, you know, these are young people. These, these are very aware, you know, early 20 year old actors who are hypercritical about these issues. And I was all for it. Yes. You know, I could see where this scene in particular was wrongheaded. And we started giving her a bunch of Devon's lines she started interrupting. She was uh, answering questions rather than being a prop. And I think I'm so glad I listened to those actors at the time because these are really delicate situations. And uh, I'm glad that she was able to take charge and become a, a much more full character through those experiences. I say a lot of films that are, you know, based in different time period also reflect today, obviously. How did you kind of go about just balancing everything? Like, that's a pretty big responsibility, all these different issues. Did you do a lot of research? Did you talk to people? What else was maybe outside of the novel that went into this? Well, I did a ton of research of, of Tuscaloosa during that time period. I mean, the novel talks about George Wallace, who was the Alabama governor at the time, um, but just barely. It just mentions him in um, a few lines one of the older characters mentions his, mentions his name. But um, I knew that George Wallace was this racist governor of Alabama. He was, um, he, in 1963, he stood at the, in the, uh, they call it the, uh, what's it called? He stood in the steps of the, of the University of Alabama and resisted letting in these two black students in an all-white college in Tuscaloosa. And Granted, this is not in the novel. We put it at the beginning of our film 
with some uh, vintage footage of that time period because I wanted that to do sort of the heavy lifting to place people in the era. Whether they knew it or not, I think it was a good reminder. And maybe for a lot of young people, they didn't know that history in, in this certain area of Alabama. And that opening, which is our opening credit sequence, leads to 1972, and now George Wallace is running for president on a racist platform, something he called um, Law and Order, which is a, not even a dog whistle. It's an outright um, racist platform that he used at that time period. And um, George Wallace was actually shot three times. He didn't die, but he spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. So we use this as an opening to sort of set the stage. Um, and then by chance, these issues sort of came all the way back around during our current political times. Um, it wasn't intentional. It's just that this film lands on what is now an election year. And um, we didn't write things into it that related to our times. But I just let the story um, sort of become an analogy for our current time. So I hope that resonates today. So a lot of big issues like that, civil rights and those kind of things, they're, they're somewhat overly summarized, especially in schools. Um, how do you kind of take the time to balance in a film the entertainment portion but also the information? Like how do you kind of make sure that you're making something people want to see but also that will inform in the end? I think that story is is a background for Billy, who is the lead character in this movie. The novel completely told the story through Billy's eyes. I spread that out a lot further. Um, we left Billy and we went to some of the events that were happening in that um, world of Tuscaloosa in 1972. Again, this is a fictional world. It's it's not reality in any way, but it's based on what was happening at the time. Um, so I try to tell it through Billy's eyes, trying to stay true to the novel. But at the same time, Billy is um, one of these characters who doesn't want to deal with all of this stuff that's happening at this tumultuous time. Um, Anti-war movement, um, young men who grew up in the civil rights era who now are turning like early 20s and some of those promises that they had hoped for didn't happen. They're starting to question the nonviolent um, means of, of getting rights. Um, one of the characters played by YG is a Vietnam vet. He returns to um, Tuscaloosa and he's dealing with even worse racial situations than when he left. Um, the white power leader oppressing these black characters. Um, he's really upset about having been drafted into the Vietnam War, having to deal with really harsh situations, and he's taking that fight to the streets. Meanwhile, Billy, our white character, is oblivious to this. He just wants a smoke pot. He's out of college, mow lawns, and he falls in love with this girl, Virginia. So Billy is the eyes of our story, but he is also the problem, as YG's character says in the movie. You're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And I think that's what's always resonated when I first read this novel up until I finally got to make this movie. That's why it stuck with me for so long, and I'm 
glad we were able to finally put it together and release it. What were some of the logistics? So most of your credits are, as you said, music videos and shorts and that kind of thing. Uh, just uh, some of the like step-by-step process. How did you possibly like get the rights to the book and, and script it and then also put yourself in a position to write and direct the film? Well, I met the author, Glasgow. We um, hung out in um, Venice Beach, and we just actually, we spent a day on the beach. I had a, a little kid at the time, and we actually didn't even talk about the novel. We just talked about things, which I thought was pretty interesting. And the next day he called me. He's like, yeah, I like what you do. I like what we talked about. I'd love to uh, see if you can make this movie. And um, that was kind of the, the beginning of that process. But every time I talked to Glasgow, I would say, I would ask him something about the novel. And he was very elusive. He's like, which I think is a good thing. He, he just wanted me to translate it the way I saw it. He wouldn't answer my questions. And I, I thought he was pretty clever about that because maybe as a novelist, and I don't know, I'm not a novelist, but maybe they want the viewer to take what they take from it. And I, in turn, hope, I mean, maybe the, the reader, I should say, and I, in turn, want the viewer to take what they take away from it. I can't predict how a viewer will see this movie or what they'll take from it, but I'm just laying it out the best I could, and I hope they, that the viewer sees the same adventure that I read in that novel. So would you say, like, based on that first conversation, maybe the thing important to both, the most important for both of you is just to get the ideas uh, presented in a, in a great way or the best possible way? I think it was even, I think we were just feeling each other out. Like, what were our opinions about life and attitude and politics and things like that? And like I say, I was just fascinated that we never once talked about the novel. Um so that's kind of been the whole process. Um, I just translated it in my own way and um, presented it on the screen. And I even wrote a lot of scenes that weren't in the novel. Um, when we brought YG in, YG is the rapper who plays in the novel. He was an extremely side character. <laughs> he was like a Black Panther activist. But when I first met YG... I was fascinated by his character, his backstory. He's a rapper from Compton. And I'm like, my God, this guy needs more scenes. So I started writing scenes on the spot. I was doing um, shooting during the day, and at night I was doing research. I was listening to Vietnam soldiers from 1971. I found this recording, and I just started jotting down what they were saying. And we had a day off on Monday um, in our short shoot schedule and I asked YG hey do you mind staying an extra day because I think I'd love to build your character much more and it'll help our story and he said great and I just wrote down all these quotes from these Vietnam vets well they weren't Vietnam vets at the time they were actual soldiers in Vietnam and I just asked him to put it in his own words so we wrote scenes while we were filming and I'm so glad I did that because it really helped develop a backstory for some of those characters which in hindsight, I realized I really needed to flush out the story. 
So you're the writer and director on this project, and based on what you just said, would you kind of recommend this total immersion in the process for a period of time to make it as great as you can? Well, there's no way to avoid total immersion. Once you start shooting, um, it's all out. I remember the cinematographer, Theo Stanley, we'd get up like at, you know, four in the morning to drive an hour to our locations. And I'd already been up for like two hours. Um, and he used to laugh. He'd say, oh, what do you got today? He told me it's the witching hour. And that's when um, a person's mind is really free when you wake up really early in the morning. And every day I'd come up with ideas, totally immersed. I lived, breathed. My wife was so sick of me talking about this movie. Um, but we had two weeks to shoot this movie. It was full on. We had no time to waste. We had to get to the point. We were dropping scenes as we went. We were adding scenes as we went. We discovered techniques while we were filming, such as this Moby camera, where we could um, have a mobile camera that was very smooth. And I started to say to uh, some of the actors, especially Natalia and Devin, who played Billy in Virginia, um, this is going to be a wonder because we're out of time. And they would roll their eyes, my God, you should have gave me a little more uh, notice. But they were great. They grew up in front of the camera. They knew how to handle a long scene. And so I'm already in overtime mode, and we have another scene to do in our day. So we shot that way, and it really worked out great. But I have to be so thankful for the experience that Natalia and Devin brought to this, or Mashant Davis, who could really handle a long scene. There's a I think like a six-minute wonder that he managed. He's playing Nigel. Um, Tate Donovan did another one, which was, I think, four minutes without an edit. Um, I'm so lucky I had these experienced actors to help me direct this movie. How do you kind of balance? Uh, I'm sure you got a lot of experience on uh, working with music videos, but I'm, and you prep all you can, but you do want those moments of spontaneity. How do you see those? Like, how do you not get too bogged down with a, a schedule or whatever it is you're doing to let some of those things happen like that? Because we had such a short sh shooting schedule, the next day after we wrapped, Natalia was on the red carpet for the, the opening of one of the Stranger Things um, seasons. So we had a hard out. Um, we prepped so much. Um, I took photos of all the locations and uh, almost shot for shot, we tried our best to imagine with stand-ins moving around in the sets to prep, prep, prep. And I learned that through music videos because with a music video, you normally only have about one or two days with a band and you have to shoot way more than you have time for. So I just had a well-oiled machine by the time we reached the first day of our shoot, as well as I'm working with so many people that I've done so much work with in the past that I could trust. And I, I had heard that's a really important thing when making your first film, to definitely work with people you know. And so we had a whole crew that I've worked with many, many times, and they were enthusiastic to help me make my first feature. As well as I just came off a film that I shot as a cinematographer in Japan, and this was a director who had made about 12 movies. Um, how I got there, it's a long story, but I use that as sort of a 
a rehearsal on how to make Tuscaloosa in a short time period. We shot everything. We got everything in the movie. We actually shot scenes that we dropped. So, you know, no matter how much rehearsal or how much we thought our script was working in edit, we rewrote the whole movie again, which you've probably heard several times. You write the movie three times, script, shoot, and edit. Um, we did just that. And, um, yeah, we went into it thinking, man, this script is tight. Well, I learned a lot very quickly. Scenes were dropped, and I wrote scenes while we shot. And I think that's sorry to kind of take a different angle from your question, but I think that is how we kept spontaneity, whether we, because we were writing scenes, some of the scenes to flush out the story even more. I think spontaneity was put into this movie, whether we wanted it or not. I think we were forced to use spontaneity just to get the film shot. Is there any, so you came in with, um, intellectual property based on this novel you've you know got over a dozen uh, shorts and some films under your belt is there any other advice you wish you had or advice you'd pass along to someone else trying to kind of make the jump from shorts to full-length features casting is everything um maybe when i was younger i thought well if i'm gonna make a film you know it should be completely independent we don't have to use stars or whatever but one thing of course casting allows you to get distribution if you have some names but what i really learned and i think this is really important this is what i try to tell people is when you cast people with experience they bring so much to your um the tools that you need as a director um I never have to ask an actor of that level to act better. You know, that's just not part of it. And some independent films, you know, they just can't afford a certain actor or not. But you'd be surprised who you can get on a low budget. If your script is good and the characters are interesting, it will draw these char- some of these actors that may have a name. They may have a, like for in the case of Natalia, she had two weeks in between shooting Stranger Things. She was able to fit that into her schedule. Um, Tate Donovan, who played the doctor, he only needed to be there for four days. So we were able to draw him. So I learned quickly that quality casting is the most important thing you can do as a first-time director. It'll help you as a director. It'll draw distribution, and it'll hopefully draw the audience. So I see you're also working on a documentary called The Claw. Uh, You made this fictional piece based on a novel. How do you decide what outlet is best for which story? Like what makes this is a true story, this uh, Tuscaloosa about, well, it's a a fictional story in a true world. But what kind of makes you decide this is better this way, this is better that way? Well, Tuscaloosa is based on the novel, and I've always thought of that as a um, fictional story. It's just something I wanted to dive into. It is a fictional story. Um, The tiny amount of documentary that's in the the film is just to set the stage, and then the story begins. Um, Some of the other projects I've done, um, it's just people that I knew that had a real story to tell, so it made sense to be a documentary. Um, 
they're side projects. They're super low budget. They're just what you do as an independent filmmaker. Whereas Tuscaloosa is a full-on, fully realized, planned and scripted uh, narrative film with the rights we had to get and align all that, casting and everything. That is the only way I could have ever seen this, this film being made is a narrative. And that is our show. Thanks again for tuning in. If it's your first time, make sure to hit that subscribe button on SoundCloud or iTunes. Also check out the new video essay series on YouTube called Creative Principles. And give us a review. That's one of the best ways to help share these interviews. Thanks again.